is that really in the Bible? You live in a world where everyone has an opinion about the Bible. Of what values are your beliefs if they are not clearly found in the pages of your Bible? The question we must ask is, are your opinions and beliefs really found in the Bible? Hello, I'm David Freeman with Is That Really in the Bible? It used to be the most quoted scripture in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Today, the most quoted religious uh, sentiment that you hear today, the most quoted uh, scripture that you hear religious people quoting is, Judge not that you be not judged. How many times have you heard that? You know, it's almost as if, I mean, it's pathetic when you think about it that we Christians have come to a point to where we think we can't judge anything. We're like the ostrich with its head stuck in the sand. No, I can't judge between right and wrong, good and evil. It's not for me to judge. I'll never forget a time I was, actually it's probably been about 20 years ago, a famous evangelist had been caught with a prostitute. Now it was on the news, they had actually caught took pictures of this man coming out of the motel with this prostitute. So, you know, he was caught red-handed. And I was down at the store, local store here, and the men were gathered around, and you know, men like to gossip, just like women too. And the men were gossiping, and this religious type come in the door, you know, this religious man. And uh, someone asked him, hey, so-and-so, what do you think about old so-and-so getting caught with a prostitute? And this religious person said, well, the Bible tells me not to judge. Oh, boy. I tell you, that's enough to make you sick, it, is it not? It's enough to make you want to throw up words like, well, the Bible tells me not to judge. You know what the Bible actually tells you to do? It tells you to judge righteous judgment. Well, what is righteous judgment? Well, you take a look at something that is wrong and you see what the Bible says about it. Does the Bible say adultery is wrong? Does the Bible say cheating on your wife is wrong? Does the Bible say going to, to a motel room with a prostitute when you're married is wrong? Well, of course it does. That's the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. So there's nothing wrong with calling a spade a spade. There's nothing wrong with saying what he did was wrong. It is a sin before God Almighty. Not a thing wrong with that. Well, there's another, another little statement that I hear going around a lot among religious people. And it goes like this. Well, we all sin. You know, we all sin. It's almost like an excuse that religious people carry with them. You know, how many times have you heard that from religious? Well, we all sin. Now, my question is, did Jesus have this lackadaisical approach towards sin? Did Jesus say, you know, well, don't worry about it, man. We all sin. You know, just don't worry about it. Is that what Jesus said? Is that what your Savior said? I don't think so. Now, there was a day when a woman, the Pharisees, the religious type, had brought this woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Now, it's always troubled me because last time I checked, it takes two to commit adultery. And for whatever reason, they didn't bring the man. But they brought the woman. And they brought the woman to Jesus and they said, you know, tempting him wanting to accuse him, wanting, wanting to trip him up. 
And they brought this woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. And they said, look, this woman was caught. Moses said that we should stone her to death. What do you say? And of course, you know the story about, you know, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. But before he said that, Jesus stooped down and he began to write on the ground. You ever thought about what he was writing? Now, the Bible doesn't say what he was writing, but I tell you what I believe he was writing on the ground. I believe he was connecting up names like Martha and John. In other words, he was connecting up other adulterous relationships. And as each man, as each man stood, went up there to look at what he was writing, they turned around in absolute disgust and humiliation, spun around and walked out. They had nothing to say. Each one, beginning with the older and ending with the youngest one. And he looked and he turned around also and left when he saw what Jesus was writing on the ground. And Jesus asked the woman, he, he said, well, does, there's no one here. Does no man condemn you? And she said, no man, Lord. And this is what Jesus said. It's found in John 8 and verse 11. It says this. She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Get this, understand this, neither do I condemn thee. Watch this. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Hey, Jesus did not have this lackadaisical approach of, Well, we all sin, woman, you know. Hey, we all sin, you know. Uh, don't worry about it. No, Jesus said, Go and sin no more. Fascinating. Now, we can talk about the fact that we all sin, and I understand that. We are all vulnerable to temptation. We, we sometimes sin out of ignorance. We just don't know that we're doing the wrong thing. And we all have our weak points, our weak points that Satan knows very well. And we all, you know, sometimes slip up and mess up. And I understand that Absolute perfection will not be achieved until the resurrection, until you are born of God, born into the family of God. In other words, once you uh, are born into the family of God, it will be impossible at the resurrection, it will be impossible for you to sin. 1 John 5 and verse 18 tells us this very plainly. It says, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Now notice this. Get, get this. Understand what's being said here. You haven't yet been born of God. I know people talk about born again and all that, but they, they really don't know what they're talking about. Or at least they think of being born again as a conversion experience, and I guess that I understand. But literally, being born of God means at the resurrection, when Christ returns, and this vile physical body is changed from flesh to spirit, like God's body. God is a spirit, and we will be changed into the same elements or whatever, the same thing that God is, spirit. Well, when that happens at the resurrection, it will be impossible for you to sin at that point. You will be no longer capable of sinning. And that will be quite a wonderful thing. But notice this verse. Let's continue on. It says, But he that is begotten of God keeps himself, and that wicked one touches him not. Notice this. He that is begotten of God. What does that mean? That means you have been begotten by the Holy Spirit. You have received a 
portion of God's Holy Spirit. You've been begotten by God. You've been impregnated by God's Holy Spirit. And that person who has the Spirit of God keeps himself, guards himself, and that wicked one touches him not. He is protected. He is guarding himself. Okay. <clears throat> Go and sin no more. Now, obviously, this woman had a specific sin. Now, my question is this. Is it possible if you have a specific sin, maybe it's a smoking addiction, maybe it's a porn addiction, addicted to pornography, maybe you're a womanizer, maybe you go around telling lies all the time. Is it possible for you to quit a specific sin that is destroying your life? Well, of course it is. Of course it is. Not only is it, is it possible, it is expected from you to stop this thing that is destroying your life. Jesus said to this woman concerning her specific sin, uh, lust, uh, adultery, fornication, whatever you want to call it. Jesus said concerning her specific sin, he said, go and sin no more. Okay, so it is possible, is it not? Now, it will never be possible with this attitude that so many religious people carry with them. Well, you know, we all sin. Yeah, we all sin. Yeah, we, everybody sins. Yeah, I sin, you sin, we all sin. You know, you're never going to get the victory with an attitude like that. You know, you've already admitted you're a loser. I'm going to lose this battle, you know. No, you'll never get the victory. Jesus said, go and sin no more. Now, how is it possible for you to quit to specifically overcome a sin that is destroying your life. How is it possible? How do we do it? Well, first of all, we got to ask, the, the first point is this, we got to ask the question, has God given you the conviction that it's wrong, the specific thing in your life? Has God given you a conviction that it's wrong? Now, obviously, we got to start there. If, if, you don't ha if you are under no conviction to stop this thing, to quit this thing, if you are under no conviction that, if you don't even have the knowledge that it's wrong, well, then obviously God is not working with you. Your time will come later. But if you're under no conviction, you know, God's not working with you right now. But if you are under that conviction, that's the first step. Has God given you the conviction that this thing is wrong. Now, the second one is this. Do I really, do you really want to quit this sin that is destroying your life? Now, there's only one correct answer to that question. And without the correct answer, you can't go on to step three. The correct answer to that question, do you really want to quit that sin that is destroying your life? The correct answer is no. No, you don't. No, you don't. You see, this is where the honesty comes in at. There is it, is, it is, it is critical to practice brutal, what I call brutal honesty with God. I mean, let's face it. Sin gives us temporary pleasure. That's the nature of it. There is a love-hate relationship that we all have with sin, you know. At first, it, you know, maybe it can feel pretty good. Maybe this, maybe that. But there is this love-hate relationship that we have with sin. Now, in order to get the victory over this, you cannot kid yourself. You have to practice brutal honesty with God. Yeah. 
And you have to say, you know, Lord, I, I really, I know it's wrong, but I really don't want to quit this thing. You see, this is where real salvation comes in at. Salvation, real salvation is making the impossible, the fact that I really don't want to give this up, but I know it's destroying my life, but I really don't want to give it up. Salvation is making the impossible possible. That's what real salvation is all around, all about. And it requires honesty with God. You see, God already knows that you really don't want to give it up. So you might as well quit, you know, don't, don't kid yourself. You're not kidding God. You only have one option, and that is to practice brutal honesty with God. You see, when you're honest with God, a strange thing happens when you're honest with God. When you're honest with God, God turns his face towards yours. And God says, God does a double take. God says, I, I, I can't believe that. That guy's actually being honest with himself and with me. It will get God's attention when you practice brutal honesty with God. You see, all of us go through what is called a clash of wills. God has his will for you and you have yours. And often those two wills are at opposite ends. It is a clash of wills. Let's notice in Luke 22 and verse 42. <coughs> Jesus saying, Father, if you will be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You know, this, this is Jesus' great temptation. He didn't want to go. He didn't want to die. He didn't want to go to the cross and suffer this kind of humiliation and pain and beating and scourging. He didn't want to go through that. And so he goes to God and he says, God, make another way for this to happen. You know, if you be willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, in other words, Jesus surrendered his will to God. God the Father's will was, no, I need you to go through this. I need you to do this. Jesus wanted out. I don't want to go through this. The Father had his will. So we're talking about a clash of wills. Now, let me tell you how most religious people deal with this clash of wills. Here's how they do it. They, when they see something in the Bible that they don't want to do, you know, God says, do this, and, and a religious person says, I, I, I don't want to do that. They build a theology that does away with the will of God. That's how they handle it. Now, don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know very good and well what I'm talking about. In fact, you've heard some of these statements like, in other words, they build a theology that does away with the will of God. You've heard these little statements like, the law's been done away with. We're not under the law. The law's been nailed to the cross. Grace plus nothing which basically equals grace and no will of God. You know, you got grace, but God doesn't even have a will. You know, that's what it equals, really. Now, it's a strange thing. This is what the psalmist says about the law of God. In Psalms 119 and verse 97, it says, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Fascinating. Quite a different view toward the law of God than most religious people have. Now, David was a converted man. You see, real conversion 
does not result in you trying to build a theology that does away with the law of God. That's not real conversion. Real conversion is coming to a point to where you can, where you say and, and truly do love the law of God. You realize it's for your own benefit. You realize it's so that, to keep you out of trouble. trouble. You see. So real conversion does not result in you trying to build a theology to prove why you don't need to do what the Bible says. That's not real conversion. So when I hear preachers saying, well, the law's been done away with. It's been, the law's been abolished. It's been nailed to the cross. We're not under the law. That was the old covenant. I realize, when I hear preachers saying that, I realize that God's Spirit has never brought them to the point to where they can say, I love the law of God. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day long. Now, the third point is in order to uh, do this, the third point is admit that you are incomplete and that you need the Holy Spirit of God. Admit that you are incomplete and that you need the Holy Spirit of God. You see, you were created incomplete. That's how you came into this world. You are only half the man or woman you were designed to be, you see. Now, how do we receive the Spirit of God? Well, Bible plainly tells us, repent. Well, what does repent mean? Well, repent means turn from your sin. There has to be a willingness to forsake sin to forsake the thing that is destroying your life. What is sin? Well, very few people, very few religious people understand that one. You know, you'd get a wide variety of, of opinion if you were to ask the average religious person what sin is. They don't know. They've never been taught it from their churches. Okay, but I'm going to tell you what sin is. First John 3 and verse 4. It says, Whosoever sins is guilty of breaking God's law, because sin is a breaking of the law. So in order to repent of sin, you've got to get educated. Someone's got to come along and tell you what sin is. And like I said, most don't teach that. There's a reluctancy to do so, to teach what is sin in churches. There very, they're very well is this reluctancy to do so. You know, because, I mean, I mean let's face reality. If, if I know there's a couple in my church living together outside of wedlock, you know, I'm going to probably skate around the edges of the Seventh Commandment about adultery, you see. Because so I don't want to go there because I, then I would lose. And if those two quit coming, they're going to take their family members with them. And so that's 15 people gone out of the church. There goes income. There goes support. So I'll just skate around the edges and not really talk about this issue of sin. But no, you've got to understand, in order to repent, you've got to know what sin is. Sin is the breaking of God's law, the Ten Commandments. That's what sin is. Okay, in order to receive the Spirit of God, you've got to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You know, it's not enough just to forgive yourself. It's not enough. The one that made you has to forgive you. We're talking about entering into a relationship with God. The slate has to be wiped clean. And what a wonderful feeling that is to go down into the waters of baptism 
to have hands laid on you for the receiving of the Holy Spirit and to come up out of that water, which is a, represents a watery grave, you are buried, your sins are buried in the water, you come back up as a new man, a new life, man, and to walk away knowing that you have the Spirit of God and that you have been forgiven, it is a great, great feeling. It really is. Okay, the next point, I sort of got ahead of myself there, but the next point on how to receive the Spirit of God is baptism. And Acts 2, verse 38, plainly tells us the, the laid out plan of this. Notice Acts 2, verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent, repent of your sins, the breaking of the Ten Commandments, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, this is a, a thorough explanation on how to go and sin no more. Now, I'm not saying that we don't make mistakes after baptism, because we do. But I'm talking about getting the victory over a specific area of your life that is destroying your life. It is possible to quit that thing that is destroying your life. It really is. Now, let me say something about baptism. There needs to be a level of maturity before baptism. You know, Jesus was 30 years old before he was baptized. And I just do not believe in infant baptism. I do not believe in baptizing anyone before puberty. Because you've got to, I mean, if you're not even mature enough to know what temptation is all about, sexual temptation, well then how are you going to know what sin is all about? I mean, you're not going to know. Now, I do believe that a teenager can, is old enough to be baptized, that they, they can have a conviction of sin and know what sin is and be taught what sin is. But uh, as far as, you know, I, I mean, I've heard people, as far as infant baptism, as far as, I mean, I've heard people say, well, I was, you know, I was baptized, I was saved at age seven, six, eight. No, I, 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 I thoroughly question that conviction if there was a real conviction of sin. Sin is the thing that's destroying your life. It takes a little bit of maturity to realize that. Not just a little bit, but a lot of maturity to come to that conclusion that I need to turn from this thing that is destroying my life. Now, <clears throat> Jesus said, go and sin no more. Jesus did not have this lackadaisical approach that so many religious people have today. Is it possible for you to overcome a specific sin that is destroying your life? Let's take a look at Revelation 3 and verse 21 and see what it says. It says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and I am set down with my Father in his throne. You know, Jesus had to overcome the tugs and pulls of temptation. He was tempted in all areas like we are, yet without sin. And sometimes we think, oh, it must have been easy for Christ. Oh, it was easy for him to resist temptation. Listen, let me ask you a question. Which is easier, to be tempted and then yield to the sin, or to never yield at all? You see, this is what Jesus did. He was tempted in all areas. Yes, he could look at a beautiful Jewish girl and think, wow but he didn't entertain the thought of sexual intercourse. So he never yielded to the temptation. Now we're good at being tempted and yielding to the temptation. Oh yeah, we got that down pat. 
But Jesus never did that. So I'm, what I'm saying is what he did for us was much harder in totally resisting that temptation and never sinning. That's what qualifies him to be our savior. The fact that he never did yield to that temptation. Now, here's the bottom line. We are to be winners. To be an overcomer means to be a winner, not a loser. Romans 8 and verse 13 says this. It says, for if ye live after the flesh, you shall die. You know, if you live after the flesh, if it feels good, do it, you're going to die. But if you through the spirit, that spirit that you receive at baptism, do mortify, that means put to death, the deeds of the body, you shall live. Wow. Man, that's a powerful scripture. If you take that gift that's been given to you at baptism called the Holy Spirit and you put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. Go and sin no more. God expects the exact same thing from us. And you can get the victory over sin. You know, it's time for all of us, I believe, to lay down our passive religion. You know, that passive religion of just walking around with our comfort zone and our little cute, you know, sayings of, well, you know, we all sin. Yeah, we all sin. Probably I'm getting ready to sin right now. Probably will as soon as I walk out the door. We all sin. Yeah, we all sin. Yeah, you sin, brother. I sin, brother. Yeah, we all sin. It's time for us to lay down our passive religion. You know, Christ died so we could forsake our sins, not live in our sins. Don't we understand that? It's time to be a winner instead of a loser. To be an overcomer, to overcome your sins by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in your life means to be a winner, to be a winner. Jesus said, go, yes, you go, and sin no more. And that's what's really in your Bible. Is it possible for you to overcome a sin that is destroying your life? Is it possible for you to be a winner at life instead of a loser? Jesus told a woman caught in the sin of adultery to go and sin no more. It's only possible if you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. Learn the step-by-step -step process for receiving the Spirit of God. Order your two free magazines, Why You Need the Spirit of God and Should You Be Baptized. Having the Spirit of God makes the impossible possible. Order by writing to Church of God, Rocky Mount, 27 Brookledge Lane, Rocky Mount, Virginia, 24151. That's Church of God, Rocky Mount, 27 Brookledge Lane, Rocky Mount, Virginia, 24151. Also, check us out on the web at isthatreallyinthebible.com. If you would like a free DVD recording of this program that you can share with friends and loved ones, write to Church of God, Rocky Mount, 27 Brookledge Lane, Rocky Mount, Virginia, 24151. That's Church of God, Rocky Mount, 27 Brookledge Lane, Rocky Mount, Virginia, 24151.
And be sure to mention the title of this program.